You happy in the Lord this morning? I am happy in the Lord this morning. And I want to say to you this morning that zeal for his house has burned me up. I am on fire with a zeal and a passion to see the house of the Lord built. And uh, I just want to invite you to join me in that passion. But when we're talking about building up the house of the Lord, we're talking about building up the people of God. That is that the church cannot grow if the people do not grow. And if the church grows, but the people don't grow, we got a problem. We're talking about institutional growth. And when we're talking about the growth of the church, we're not talking about the growth of an institution. We're talking about the growth of believers. We're talking about growing up in Christ. We're talking about making progress in the spirit. We're talking about not maintaining the same place that we've always maintained, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. You know, for so long we talk about growth as if it's inevitable, but how many know that growth is not inevitable? Even in the natural, you grow to a certain point, and after that it takes intentionality. That is, you know, I, I gained a certain level of strength when I turned 18 years old. There was a certain boost of strength that came from the physical transition from boyhood to manhood. But after that burst of strength, I wasn't going to grow any stronger unless I was intentional about cultivating disciplines that are designed to grow my muscles. It's the same thing spiritually. If you come to faith in Christ, there is a certain kind of natural progression of growth and maturity that takes place. But that natural progression can only take you so far. You get to a certain point where either you are intentional about growing in Christ or you stagnate in Christ. And if you stagnate in Christ, you're simply not growing any further. You're not going any deeper in Christ than you were last year. And what tends to happen is believers can end up living year after year after year after year, going through Bible studies, listening to sermons, going to church services. And they become disillusioned because you look back and say, I don't see how I've grown at all over the last several years. I've been at this thing for 15 years, and I don't remember if I'm any different now than I was then. I don't know how I've grown. And others will say, oh, I've grown so much in Christ. And if you ask them, how? In what areas have you grown in in Christ? What are the indicators? What are the metrics that you're using to determine the degree to which you've grown in Christ? Uh, Most believers are hard-pressed to actually give you an answer. Well, I'm in the middle of a series right now. This is part two of the series. And the series is designed to provide you with some metrics for understanding what it means to grow in Christ and for evaluating where you are in Christ and for determining how you've grown in Christ and to which dimension. Now, last week, I gave you the analogy of a baby with adult-sized legs. If you can imagine a baby with adult-sized legs, you're talking about an individual that has grown in one dimension but has not grown in other dimensions. And there's lopsided Christians like that. Babies in Christ but got adult-sized legs can actually go do great things. You see them running across the globe, but if you sit down and talk, talk to them, you're talking to a baby. And you, you, you wonder, how did you get to where you are? Right. Say, so, well, I got these big old legs. Now, the thing is, if you saw a human being with adult-sized legs, but an upper body of a baby, you would know something is wrong. Matter of fact, you would know something's wrong. I mean, if, if your baby starts growing out huge legs, you take them to the doctor immediately. Because there's something about our physical makeup that demands that our physical body, that every member of our physical body grows at the same rate. But that's not true spiritually. 
You can actually study the scripture so intently that you grow out these long spiritual legs as far as your knowledge of scripture is concerned. But as far as loving others is concerned, you still got a little baby upper body. You can actually go to the, grow to the point in prayer where you cultivate deep intimacy with God in prayer, but you don't have two scriptures to rub together when you need it. And so it's all an experience. And so we have been looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and following, and what we're looking at is a four-dimensional picture of spiritual growth, a four-dimensional understanding of what it means to grow in Christ And if you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, we're going to read this passage of Scripture again together, and we're going to take it to the next level today. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 3, 14, Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. Paul says, I'm praying that you would grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. These are four dimensions, four distinct dimensions of spiritual growth. Last week we talked about grasping the wideness of his love. What does it mean to grow wide with Christ? And we said last week that the wideness of God's love is its all-encompassing character. That is, that it encompasses all people. And when you begin to grasp the wideness of God's love, you begin to apprehend His love for all people. We said last week that it's not about you giving God's love to others. It's about you joining God in giving His love to others. Because whether you give His love or not, God is already giving His love to others. If you don't love me, you haven't robbed me of anything. You've robbed yourself of the experience of joining God and loving me. Because whether you love me or not, God's going to be loving me. Nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, even the people you don't like, God loves them. Even the people who hurt you, God loves them. And so last week we talked about the scandalous nature of the love of God. And and we, we... urged and encouraged one another. We exhorted one another to learn how to love scandalously with God. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to pick up a copy of that message. Now, this morning we're going to talk about the length of God's love. What does it mean to grasp the length of God's love? If the wideness of his love means that it encompasses all people, the length of his love means that it encompasses all time. That is, God's love is eternal. It stretches back before the foundations of the world, and it reaches all the way through history to touch your life, and it reaches forward all the way through the end of the age and into the eternity to come. God's love is eternal. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, the prophet says, The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, I have drawn you with loving kindness. There's a distinction between his loving you and his drawing you. He said, I've loved you with an everlasting love, but at some point in time, I drew you with loving kindness. The moment God drew you to himself is the first moment you became conscious of his love, but it was not the first moment that he began to love you. 
God's love for you reaches all the way back into eternity. He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you with an eternal love. And that means that his love is not merely an experiential phenomena. It is not merely an ethical phenomena. It is a historic phenomena. Understanding the length of God's love means understanding its historic character. Now, this is really hard for us to grasp because we live in a very episodic culture. We live in a culture in which every experience of life is seen as an episode that is autonomous, really. Life, to many of us in Western culture, is like a sitcom, isn't it? I mean, because if you turn on a sitcom, you can jump in in the middle of the season and watch one episode, and that one episode is self-contained. You don't have to know what came before it or what came after it. You could just jump in, watch it, laugh, enjoy it, and go on about your business. And most of us have a very composite experience of television. Most of us don't sit and watch, you know, I have to watch every single episode of this. You know, maybe you have one show like that, but you just, you know, sometimes you just want to see what's on. Okay, Friends is on. I'll watch Friends, okay? And you watch this one episode where Monica loves Chandler, but in the next episode, Monica hates Chandler. You know, a lot of people live their lives like that, believers in Jesus Christ. Today, God loves me. Why? Because everything's going well. But then a week later, something goes wrong, and why doesn't God love me? I thought he loved me, but now I realize that he doesn't. Because if he loved me, how could he let this happen to me? We have such an episodic view of the love of God that we think it changes with every episode in our lives. Let me tell you something. God's love is not episodic love. It's not an episode that starts at six and ends at seven. It began in eternity and stretches forward into eternity. His love never fails. It never gives up and it never runs out on you. And so you have to go longer with God. And when we're talking about going longer with God, we're talking about entering into the history of his love. And when you begin to enter into the history of God's love, the sign that you've gone longer with God is that your love becomes non-episodic. See, the, the thing is, you can tell whether or not you think God's love is episodic by whether your love is episodic or not. How long does your love last? Because if your love is marked by the temporary love of man, then you simply have not fully stepped into the eternal love of God. Because you cannot respond to the eternal love of God with the temporary love of man. The only proper, appropriate response to the eternal love of God is in eternal love. And when you begin to love, as Paul said, love suffers long. Love is patient, he said in the NIV. The word there in the Greek is literally long-suffering. Love suffers long. Love waits. Love endures. Love perseveres. Love presses through. Do you realize that he started loving you in eternity, but waited thousands of years before he was able to pour out his love on your life? He waited thousands of years until the day you were born, until he could take you in his arms. And even after you were born, for some of us, he waited decades before he actually had a moment where he could blast us with his love. And some of us even in this room right now, he's still awaiting the day when he might reveal his love to you, when he might set you up to get blasted by his love. That's how patient and long-suffering he is. That even when you were spitting in his face and saying, I don't want anything to do with you, he was saying, that's okay, my love is still waiting because I'm patient like that. My love is eternal love, not episodic love. I don't change the channel when I don't like what happens in the episode. I'm not worried about the episode. My love cannot be condemned. 
contained. It cannot be quantified. It cannot be documented. My love is unprecedented. My love is unquantifiable. It goes beyond all knowledge of anything ever seen or known. My love is infinite. It is eternal love. I used to love her. I used to love her is a statement that is only that only a human being is capable of. Only human beings can talk about people they used to love. Spiritual beings are not capable of speaking of beings that they used to love because Satan never loved anybody and God always loves you. Once God begins to love you, he always loves you. And Satan never began to love you and he never will love you. Only human beings can love from a temporary perspective. God wants to take us beyond the temporary love of man and into the eternal love of God. So you must understand the historic nature of the love of God. You know, to grasp the wideness of God's love, you simply need to learn how to join him in loving everyone you meet. But to grasp the length of his love, you've got to learn how to look back. You've got to learn how to remember. You've got to learn how to study. And you've got to learn how to pay attention to the ways in which his love has manifested on the stage of human history. You know, whenever you get to know two people that are in love, especially a married couple, first question you have for them is, how did you guys meet? You know what you want to know? You want to know their story. Because when you meet a couple that's in love, it's kind of cool. But when you begin to understand their story... It takes you to a whole nother level of appreciation for their love, right? I mean, when you know their story, so a couple, you know, people will meet me and my wife and they'll say, what's your story? And I always tell them the same thing. I say, yeah, you know, she and I were friends for five years and all of a sudden one day she just jumped on me and started kissing me. I said, okay. <laughs> and then she slaps me in the head and then I tell the truth. <laughs> all right, it was nothing like that. Actually, we were friends for five years. We went on a mission trip together, and I fell in love with her in the middle of the mission trip, which is kind of awkward because <laughs> it's really hard to preach side by side next to somebody that you just fell in love with last night. I mean, literally, I went to bed not in love with her. I woke up the next morning in love with her. And she wondered why I was trying to avoid her for the rest of the trip because I can't be on a mission trip trying to holler. <laughs> You know, you can't be over in Africa be like, hey, baby, how you doing? That just ain't right. So I thought the, the, you know, the most godly thing I can do is avoid her. But she was following me like, what's wrong with you? How come you avoided me? I'm like, oh, no, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. We got home and I took her out to lunch and I told her that I had feelings for her that went deeper than friendship. And she said, thank you for your honesty. And let me also return that honesty with my honesty. Honestly, I don't have those feelings for you at all. I said, I respect that, and I respect that. And 10 months later, we were married. That's the, that's the Reader's Digest version. I played a Jedi mind trick on her. Honestly, I did one day. You know, She said, I don't think I love you. I said, no, you love me. She said, are you sure? I said, I'm absolutely sure. She said, all right, let's get married. <laughs> you love me. <laughs> we immediately entered into 
the part of our relationship that I refer to as purgatory. I used to refer to it as hell. But I realized hell is eternal. Purgatory is temporary. So purgatory is a better explanation of what we went through. The first two years of our marriage were not a happy time. Okay? Matter of fact, it was a terrible time. And I can say that honestly. If she was standing right here, she would laugh about it and say, he's right. It's, it's worse than he's saying it was. It, it was bad. We had a tough time. The first two years of marriage, we couldn't figure out how to get along. And it seemed like everything caused a fight. Everything caused a fight. Good morning. Well, why'd you say it like that? I mean, for, you know, I was like, and I'm not saying it was her. I'm saying it was me. I'm the one. You know, I, I, I learned that there was a crazy man in me that I didn't know how to deal with. But I could only see the crazy woman in her. Now, we went through many dangers, toils, and snares. And in the midst of it, we did eight months of therapy. We read every book we could get our hands on. We went to workshops, seminars. We had friends who were therapists that we spent many hours in their homes, sitting at the dinner table, asking them to coach us through stuff. We did everything we knew how to do to fix this thing because we knew that our marriage was not a happy place, but we were determined that we were going to learn how to make it a happy place. Now, let me tell you something. After 12 and a half years of marriage, Sonny and I went out for Valentine's night this last week. And you know what we did? We sat at the table and we recounted everything that we had done to make each other miserable over 12 and a half years. <laughs> and we laughed about it. I mean, we talked about it and we laughed. Remember this? Remember that? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Remember this? Remember how long that fight lasted? Oh, yeah, I remember that. And we laughed and laughed and laughed. And, and, and that night, just before I went to sleep, I looked her in the eye. I said, baby, here's to many more years of making each other miserable. <laughs> And she laughed and we kissed and embraced and went to sleep. Why? Let me tell you something. When you get married, you're going to get each other, get on each other's nerves for the rest of your life. Come on. That's just the truth. I mean, there's some stuff that you're going to be able to resolve, but there's some stuff you're just not going to be able to fix. I mean, there's some stuff. There's stuff my wife's been working on me about for 12 and a half years. She simply has not learned yet that I ain't changing in that area. I'm sorry. That just... Come on. It is what it is. It is what it is. But here's the point of all this. The point that I'm making in all of this is that all of the hardship that we went through and the mountains we had to climb over, all it did was create a historicity to our love. We have a deeper bond than I ever thought we would have today. And the reason we have that deep bond is because we went through some stuff together. We climbed some mountains together. We had to ford some streams together. We had to cross some rivers together. We had to trudge through barren deserts together. But when we came out of it, we came to a mountaintop and we, came, we began to look over into the promised land. But we could also look back at the jungle that we had to climb through and say, we've been through some stuff together, haven't we? And understanding the history of what we went through together does not rock us or damage us in the long term, all it does is strengthen our bond. Because after going through all that with you, ain't no way I'm leaving you. And starting over with somebody else that I got to go through all that with? Uh-uh, 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 I ain't never leaving you. No, 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 no. You put up with 12 and a half years of crazy? 
I am never walking away from somebody that could put through 12, go through 12 and a half years of my crazy. I'm, we're, I ain't going nowhere. I'm a fight for this thing. You hear what I'm saying? It is the history that strengthens us so that I don't think episodically anymore. So that when we have a fight or an argument with each other in my, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this is just one of many that we've had and one of many more that we're going to have. But I know after 12 and a half years that we're going to get through this thing. We're going to make it. But let me tell you something. The history of our love extends further back than when our marriage began. It actually extends back a year earlier because a year earlier I made the decision to attend Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena where she had become a student a year prior. Had I not gone to Fuller Theological Seminary, we would not have fallen in love a year later and we would not have been married and we would not be here right now, today. And the Lord supernaturally spoke to me and sent me to Fuller Theological Seminary. I mean, I had a divine experience with God. And when I look back on that experience, which I don't have time to relate to you today, I see how God loved me so much that he moved me halfway across the state of California to position me to be in the place to fall in love with the right woman at the right time. I say, God, that is awesome. But wait a minute. It extends further back than that. Matter of fact, let's take it way back. Let's take it back to the place of her birth. She was born in South Korea in a city called Taejeon in 1971. She took me to Taejeon several times. And every time I go to Taejeon, I feel like I learn a little bit more about her history. But when I learn about her history, for some reason, I feel like it's my history, too. Even though I wasn't there, I didn't even know her. But I know I know her now and she's my love and she's my life. And so learning her history is learning my history. It's the history of the preparation of my love to come into my life. And so she showed me the house where she grew up and and she showed me the place where her father worked. And she showed me the elementary school where she went to school in the playground and said, I used to kick a soccer ball in this playground right here. And she showed me the route she used to walk home when she leaves school. And and she showed me where she would get on the bus. Even as a six year old girl, her mother would send her across town on the bus with money in her pocket to go to the store and how she could do that at six years old because there was no danger in her community. And, And she introduced me to her cousins and to her aunts and uncles and her family members there and I began to to learn about the history of my wife and I began to learn that at the age of 11 her family moved halfway across the world to a town called Anchorage, Alaska. You ever heard of that town? You never heard of Anchorage, Alaska? You well, it's good because you don't want to live in Anchorage, Alaska. I mean, why would anybody move to Anchorage, Alaska? You ever been to Anchorage, Alaska? In the wintertime, in the wintertime, the sun comes out for about 45 minutes and it's dark for the rest of the time. You know, they pay people to live in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm serious. There's no taxes in Anchorage. You get paid. The, the government pays you to live in that godforsaken place. Her family moved from Korea to Anchorage, Alaska. God moved that entire family across the world when that woman was 11 years old. Her whole family had to go. Why? Because God said, I got someone for this young lady here, and she's going to meet him in about 10 years. 
but she's not ready yet. But to prepare for that meeting, I got to move her to the United States. And he moved her whole family to Anchorage, Alaska. When I learned that, I began to understand how much God loved me. He loved me so much that he moved my wife's whole family to the other side of the world to situate her in a place where we could meet. However, I had never been to Anchorage, Alaska. How are we going to meet when I'm in California? She's in Anchorage, Alaska. It gets better. The plot thickens. Because when she was 14 years old, God moved her to Castro Valley, California. Can I get a witness? Uh, but wait, <laughs> it gets a little better than that. Because huh? when she was 19 years old, huh? she was lost in sin. Huh? She was going to parties. Huh? She was drinking and smoking. Huh? But Jesus, huh? I said, Jesus, huh? I said, Jesus. Huh? When she was 19 years old, Jesus radically changed her life. And she began to ask the Lord, what do you want to do with my life? And the Lord told her, go to this little college in Oakland called Patton College and study Christian education there. And she showed up in the fall of 2004 to study Christian education in Patton College. Little be announced to her or to me, I was right across the street as a senior in the high school. Patton High School. For a year, she was in the college, I was in the high school. Never the two shall meet. (laughs) Can you imagine God sitting up in heaven watching this whole thing go down, looking at her in the college, looking at me in the high school, going, just one year to go. I can't wait to hook y'all up. I'm setting it up. I'm setting it up. Jesus is looking down going, Father, man, you are a gangster. Look what you did. You moved her from Ted Jun. To Anchorage, from Anchorage to Castor Valley, from Castor Valley to Oakland, and now you got them right across the street. I can't wait to see what you do with this, Daddy. But wait, the plot thickens. Because my senior year of high school, I was being courted by several schools, several prominent music schools across the country, because my musical gifting was the most pronounced gift that I had in my life at the time. But I was struggling in my heart because I felt like I was called to preach the gospel, but I never had an opportunity to preach the gospel, so I didn't know if I really could preach the gospel. You know, it's kind of hard to pour all of your energy into pursuing something that you're really not sure if you're gifted to do or not. I knew I was gifted to do music, and so the natural thing was go to school and study music. Take these opportunities. People were telling me, you could be good, you could be world class, you could be great, but something in my heart said, that's not enough. I want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the end of the earth. God's called me to preach. I'll never forget, I was waffling. I was thinking, I'll go to one of these music schools, I'll study music, and then I'll go into the ministry. And one night at church, one Sunday night service, in my senior year of high school, I went to a, ch- I went to a church service at our church, And our pastor was preaching and she was saying, some of you young people out there, the world is alluring you. And it's stretching out its hands with all kinds of open doors and opportunities and saying, come with us, come with us, come with us. But the word of the Lord is coming to you tonight and that he has set before you a straight and narrow path. And he has not opened many mighty doors, but only one small door and one narrow path. And he's saying, trust me and come walk this path with me. Don't look to the left or to the right. Walk away from the doors that the world is opening for you and take the path that the Lord is setting out. It was as if everyone in the room cleared out and I was the only one in that sanctuary because God was piercing me with his word like it was a sword and it was cutting me right to the heart. At the end of that service, I ran to the altar and I said, Lord, I'm going to put all of my ducks in this one pond. I'm going to serve you with all of my heart and I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ or burst. 
The next morning I went and signed up to be a student at Patton College. At that time it was just a college, and I enrolled in the pastoral studies degree program. And a few months later, I became a freshman at Patton College. And I'll never forget the first week of school, I was coming out of one classroom and across the hall. Oh, the Lord was, so, I could just see the Lord up in heaven and go, this is it. This is the moment. I've waited millennia to see this. And as I came out, she was coming out across the hall and we turned and faced each other. And the moment I saw this little skinny Asian curly haired girl, she had a long curly perm at the time. The moment my eyes laid hands on her, a thought flashed across my head. That's your wife. And I went, what in the world? Get that out. What in the world? That's crazy. Six years later, we were married. That was my wife. The Lord spent years and even generations setting up that moment. Now, if he did that to set me up to get blasted by love for my wife and to set her up to get blasted by my love, what do you think he's willing to do to set you up to get blasted by the love of Christ? I mean, if he was willing to move her family to the other side of the world to set her up to meet me, what do you think he's willing to do to set you up to meet Jesus Christ? Do you understand the lengths to which he will go to demonstrate his love for you? Do you understand how far he will go to set you up? You know what? You know what I love? Passion of the, the, the part of, portion of the New Testament that I love reading? I love reading the genealogies. How many just love the genealogies? Can I get a witness? Now, that's the part you just skip over. You go to Matthew chapter 1 and let's, let's roll down. Uh, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. You know, I want to stop and just look at the genealogy of Jesus real quick. If you really get some revelation about the genealogies, the genealogies will blow you away. Look at this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. There he gives us an outline for his genealogy. Jesus, David, Abraham. Which takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God appeared to Abraham. Hold on, this is going to blow you away. This is going to blow you away. Hold on to your socks. Because if this revelation really gets you, you'll never be the same again. God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and says, get up out of your father's house. Go to the place I'll show you and I'll make of you a great nation. And I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. And watch this. And through you. All the nations of the world. Will be blessed. Do you realize that when God spoke that to Abraham, he was not prophesying? He was not making a prediction. God is all knowing. That means that he was already looking all the way through history to the end of the age. And at that moment, he saw every single connection. Between Abraham 
and every single human being that would come to faith in Jesus Christ because of him. So when he said through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God was thinking, I see it. No, I'm telling you through you, all the nations. Why? Because I have already set up. Every individual who will come to faith in Christ through your faith to be blasted by love because of what you're about to do. That means that at that moment, this is not a cliche. At that moment, God saw you. And he saw every link between Abraham and you. He he had already created the plan to blast you with the love of Christ through Abraham's faith. He had already determined the plan. And matter of fact, he had already determined it in eternity. When he comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, Abraham, I've already worked this out. I worked it out in eternity. I'm not going to give you this promise and then go home and try to figure out how to make it work. I've already made it work. I'm just simply instituting the plan that I planned before the foundations of the world to set you up to be the father of faith for all who would believe. But you got to see how this plays out for a second. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. And all the other 12 tribes, all the other 11 of the 12 tribes. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon was the father of Salmon. Now, we got to stop with Salmon for a second. How many have heard of Salmon? You've been heard of Salmon? Salmon. You never heard of Salmon? Salmon, okay. Well, Salmon had a wife named Rahab. You ever heard of Rahab? You know who she was? She's known as Rahab the harlot. Now, we don't use the word harlot in our culture. There's some other choice words. But let's just say she was a prostitute. She was a streetwalker. Rahab the prostitute. Now, how did Salmon, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Judah... Find himself in love with and marrying a prostitute. Well, you've got to go to Joshua chapter 2 to understand this because God commanded Joshua to take the city of Jericho and God gave him the strategy and Joshua sent spies into the city of Jericho to spy it out and the spies saw they were about to get caught and so what did they do? They ran into a whorehouse that was run by a woman named Rahab. And they said, Rahab the harlot... I mean, she came as, hi, I'm I'm Rahab the harlot. Nice to meet you, harlot. Would you please hide us? Let me tell you something. That harlot had heard from God because she said, the Lord showed me that you guys are about to destroy this place. I'm asking you, if I show you kindness, will you show me kindness and not destroy my whorehouse? And they said, if you take this red cord and... Hang it from your window. We will not destroy your house of ill repute. Are you hearing this? And then Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. 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 Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. 
And when the walls came tumbling down, one piece of the wall didn't come tumbling down. It was the wall that housed Rahab's house of ill repute. God spared that whorehouse. But something happened to Rahab the harlot. And the Bible doesn't tell us the history of how it went down. But somehow after she saw what God did on her behalf to spare her from death when she should have died for her sins, God showed her mercy. Rahab the harlot came out of that life of harlotry and said, I ain't going to be no harlot no more. Now I want to be a wife. And there was this man named Salmon who came into the city of Jericho to collect the booty, the spoils. And he saw Rahab. Are you with me? And he said, Rahab, you are, you are cute, Rahab. And she said, well, you're not looking so bad yourself, Mr. Salmon. His name was Salmon. <laughs> And Rahab and Salmon went ahead and jumped the broom. They tied that knot. And they had a son named Boaz. Hold on a second. You ever heard of Boaz? Listen, ladies, you better wait for your Boaz. Don't take none of his cousins. I'm not going to give you none of their names. Salmon and Rahab had a son named Boaz, but there was a problem with the boy. The Bible doesn't tell us this clearly, but it's implicit in the story that he was ugly. You know how I know he was ugly? Because the man was old and not a single and the man was old and rich and he still couldn't get a woman. And God said, I can't let the line stop with Boaz. I need a wife for Boaz. Where can I get a wife for Boaz? And God saw way down in Moab, this woman named Ruth. You ever heard of her? She's got a book of the Bible with her name written on it. But wait, she was a Moabitess. Do you know who the Moabites were? You know who Moab was? You ever heard a lot? Remember when he and his family were running from Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife looked back, turned into a pillar of salt? He took his two daughters and they were living in caves in the mountain. And the two daughters said, if we don't do something, our father's line is going to come to an end. Let's get him drunk. They got him drunk, took turns having sex with their own father. And both of them got pregnant and gave birth to sons. And one of them had a son named, wait for it, Moab. And Moab became the father of the Moabites. This is tearing me up. This is blown. Do you, are you hearing this? And so God looked down at this group of inbreds and pulled out this woman named Ruth, whose husband had died, and her mother-in-law was named Naomi. She was a Hebrew from the city of Bethlehem. And Ruth and Naomi said, My husband's dead. Your husband's dead. I'm going home. You go back to your mama. But God put something in Ruth's heart. And Ruth said, I'm going back with you. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Why? Because God saw that Ruth was the perfect candidate to be the the wife of this man named Boaz. And when Ruth goes and lays at the feet of Boaz, he says, blessed are you, for you did not go after the younger men. You know what he's saying? 
I'm so old and unattractive that there's not a woman in Israel that could go for me. But Ruth said, I'll take you. They got married. They jumped that broom. They tied that knot and they had a son. His name was Obed. And Obed had a son whose name was Jesse. (laughs) Come on, somebody. Uh. And Jesse had a son. His name was David. And he became the king of Israel. Who said the genealogies are boring? Man, I read the genealogies. I find myself shouting and dancing and jumping up and down. You know why? Because what I see in the genealogy is the historicity of the love of God. I see that his love was so great. You know, John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But we don't stop to see the process. The process started with Abraham and it went to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah and to Perez. And it it went on down the line in King David. And any time there was a a break in the link in the chain, Jesus would not have come into the world. And so God said, I'm not going to let there be a break in the chain. Do you realize that a genealogy could be written that starts with Abraham and stretches all the way to you? That if you suddenly would become aware of every historic generational link between you and Abraham. To see the people that God positioned moved way to the other side of the world. Simply to set you up to get blasted by the love of Christ. His love is so long. But we're so short-sighted. We think his love is six months old. You think his love for you is only as long as you've been saved. He didn't wake up one day and decide to love you. He's been loving you since eternity. Just because you just met his love doesn't mean that's where it began. It began in eternity. He's been loving you every moment of every day. And he spent generations and ages setting you up. Putting people in precise places because he knew what it would take to reach your heart. He knew what it would take to move your heart. He knew what it would take to set you up to get blasted with the love of Christ. That's the length of his love. And when you step into the length of his love, you start reading the Bible differently. You stop seeing it as the ancient words of a religious book and you start seeing it as the history of God's love for you. Just as I went to Tejun and I saw the history of my wife in Tejun as an extension of my own history. Why? Because that was the preparation, her preparation to be my wife and to come in my life. That's my history too. Let me tell you something. When you read the pages of scripture, that's your history too. That's what God did to set you up to get blasted by the love of Christ. That was what he was willing to do to pour out his love for you. That was what he was willing to do to give you an opportunity to hear the gospel and to say, yes, it's your history. When God takes you into the length of his love, suddenly you begin to read the scriptures as if it's God's personal love letter to you. Mm. Woo. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. 
I'm losing my breath preaching this one. I tell you what, nothing gets me so excited. Nothing gets me so excited than to see the lengths to which God will go to show one person thousands of years later how much he loves them. You are the object of God's love. And I mean that in a historic sense. He pulled back the bow of his love and aimed the arrow of his love at you in eternity. And when he released that bow, that arrow shot through centuries and millennia. Piercing through thousands of years, ages and generations to hit you right in the heart. You are the object of God's love, but you're also the expression of his love. Because just as God set up a historic chain of events designed to set you up to get blasted by God's love, so he has made you a part of a progression. That there are people that God has set you right in the way of. That you are a part of their history. And people not just in your generation, but hundreds and thousands of years later, people will put you in their genealogy and say you were a part of that line of blessing. And it doesn't matter how badly you messed up. It doesn't matter what's fallen apart in your life. Just look at the genealogy of Jesus. He took murderers and hoes and put them in that genealogy and said, my love can even pierce through their lives. Mm. everything that has happened since the dawn of time and the creation of the world has set you up for this very moment, this very day. Everything that God has done since eternity has been his way of preparing to show you a specific kind of his love today. And when you enter into the length of God's love, you'll see every situation, every moment, every day as preparation for the release of God's love. It's a setup. God is setting you up and God is setting up others through you to get blasted by his love. It's a setup. And that's what it means to grow into the length of his love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you, God, that you are releasing the revelation of your love. Your love is mind-blowing. Your love is mind-blowing. It's a love that surpasses knowledge. It's a love that goes beyond anything that we could ever know. But yet, through revelation, you give us the power to grasp it. Through revelation, you hold it out to us and say, here, take a hold of this. I want you to apprehend it. I want you to grasp it. I want you to possess it. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would take us into the length of your love. That you would take us into the history of your unfailing love. That you would cause us to begin to see 
that you've loved us with an everlasting love and that you've drawn us with loving kindness. God, I speak your blessing over this house today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ over each and every heart, over each and every mind. And I pray that you would take the seeds of the word spoken today and plant them deep in every heart and let them bring forth fruit, some 30, 60, and 100 fold. Your love is amazing, steady and unchanging. It's a mystery, but it's also being revealed. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. How wonderful, how marvelous, and my song shall ever be. How wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. O love of God, so rich and pure, so measureless and free. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. We thank you for your love. We receive it. We receive it now. Would you just begin to tell them, I receive your love. I receive your love. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Beloved, now we are the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. The love of God, the love of God, that love of God is here for you today. That love of God has stretched forth across time and eternity to touch your life today. That love of God has come to set you free today. It's come to burn away the dross and it's come to purify. It's come to to make free and to make alive the love of God in its purity, in its passion, in its fullness, and in its joy. It's here for you. All you have to do is open your heart and say, Lord, I'm ready to receive your love. And I thank you for it. Make me a reflection of it. And Father, I just speak your blessing over each and every one under the sound of my voice. Strengthen and encourage each one. Take us into the length of your love. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.